Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's podcast is one of a number of special episodes that we'll be publishing during 2020 to mark 100 years of women's suffrage in the United States. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified on the 18th of August of 1920. The subject of today's episode is the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA. Like the 19th Amendment, the ERA relates to women's rights. However, although it's been around for decades, it's yet to be passed. In fact, the ERA has actually proven surprisingly divisive amongst women. One woman in particular, Phyllis Schlafly, launched an all-out war against it during the 1970s in a way which continues to have repercussions today. To learn more about Phyllis Schlafly and the ERA, we're joined by Stephanie Hinnerschitz, who's speaking with us from a studio at Cleveland State University, where she's an assistant professor in the Department of History. Stephanie, welcome. Hi, Rachel. Stephanie, can I start by asking you to tell us how the Equal Rights Amendment initially came about? Sure. So the Equal Rights Amendment was really proposed right after women received the right to vote. And it was about 1923. And it was a way to kind of take some of the gains under suffrage and put them more in line with other areas. So labor, political, all kinds of different different modes of, of equality. And so it was first proposed in 1923. And it was actually pretty divisive from the beginning. One of the big concerns for a lot of women who had just come out of huge movements to get political rights and also labor rights under the progressive movement, so protective laws for their health, trying to fight for things like a minimum wage. So there was a lot of concern that the proposed ERA would limit some of the rights that applied specifically for women. So that's... it. it, kind of came out of that progressive era. And it it fell off a little bit because it was so divisive, but came back again during about World War II and after World War II. It was pro, uh, proposed again in 1940, and there was really kind of broad bipartisan support for it. So it was reintroduced back into Congress in 1947 after the end of World War II. But again, there was this almost immediate backlash to it from a lot of women who confused the idea of equal rights with identical rights. So it was that same idea of they didn't want any specific rights that applied to women to be done away with because of the Equal Rights Amendment. So the Equal Rights Amendment was, again, trying to make sure that there was equality for women kind of across the board. But there were a lot of people who were concerned that this would actually limit the rights of women. So labor laws and also things like the draft. And so that'll come back um, again in a big way during the Vietnam era. So it kind of languished a little bit. In 1950, Carl Hayden, who was a Democratic congressman from Arizona, reintroduced the ERA and he modified it a little bit, saying that the amendment would not be construed to impair any rights, benefits, or exemptions confirmed by law upon women. And people who actually supported the ERA didn't like that language because they thought it it actually limited a lot of the potential for the ERA. And so the bill actually failed to come to a vote on the House floor, and it was was tabled once again. But during the 60s, when you get the rise of a new women's rights movement, the National Organization for Women, which was a political activism group, uh, they started to push again and it was they endorsed it in 1967. So by the late 60s and early 70s, the ERA was kind of back back in the media light and it was going up 
um, for ratification again. And in 1970, um, the House approved it and it went on to the Senate where some senators tried to attach sort of riders to it. So to protect women from the draft, to protect women when it came to child custody rights and workers' rights. But those riders actually weren't very popular. Just before you go on, I want to ask a few few more questions that have arisen along the way. So you say that it was very divisive from the start. And I think from what I understand, it was divisive amongst women as well as um, just generally, right? Yes, it was. It was divisive among a lot of people, but especially among women, because there's those questions of what is a woman's role in society, whether it's um, social or political or economic ways, and then what might an equal rights amendment do to some of the special protections that women had. So it really did come down to what people believed a woman's role in society should be. And you said something about people conflating equal rights with identical rights. And I can understand why they would conflate them because they sound like they would be identical. So what is incorrect about seeing those two as exactly the same? You're right. They they are very similar, and it would be easy to see how they would kind of blend or, or merge in. But the issue was assuming that identical rights would primarily mean that women would have to be drafted. And so that was like a big hinge on this. Like a lot of women were concerned that equality meant identical, that women would be completely identical with men. And so there was a lot of concern that women would be able to be drafted in time of war. Right. And and was that in fact part of the amendment? Would that have been true had it gone through? No. And that was, I mean, that was a debate that kind of went throughout the 60s and the 70s. And there wasn't really a clear indication that that would have actually come about because of the ERA. But it was a point that a lot of conservative women used, and it became part of this conversation about if this is passed, then that means women are going to be able to be drafted. Right. And I think I read somewhere that they were worried it was taking away protections like no heavy lifting or decreased night hours or something like this. Yes. So a lot of the things that were put in place to protect women, whether it's their health um, or especially things like Certain access to like um, maternity leave or different different issues like that or women having the right to fight for custody of their children. There was a lot of concern that those things would go away because there were beliefs that under under this amendment, women would be treated exactly identical to men rather than equal in terms of what access to opportunities they had. Okay, so I cut you off as you were giving us a a whistle-stop tour of the history (laughs) of the Equal Rights Amendment. I think we got to about the late 60s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, in the late 60s, because of a lot of the success of the women's rights movement with introducing different ideas to the public about what a woman should be able to do, but also, you know, if you look at Roe v. Wade, we're kind of building toward that. So when you get to the late 60s, the ERA has new momentum, and it builds um, throughout the early 1970s. And it actually, um, it's passed in 71. And then in 72, it's passed in the Senate overwhelmingly. And the Senate basically said that it needed to be ratified by three-fourths of the state within seven years. But by the very early 70s, and especially 1972, it looked like the ERA was actually going to be a success and to be ratified and put into the Constitution. So what happened then? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you can say um, Phyllis Schlafly happened then, but you can see the rise of a new type of conservative movement. But in all honesty, 
uh, Phyllis Schlafly gets a lot of, and rightfully so, a lot of the credit for being the woman to torpedo the ERA. Who was she? She's a very interesting figure. She is seen as like uh, the poster woman for the new conservative movement that really kind of comes of age in the 70s and bridges fiscal conservatism with social conservatism. So a lot of the things that we would identify with like the Republican Party today, a focus on religious values, small government. She is, as far as women are concerned, she's like the the pinnacle of that. And a little bit of her background, um, she... Uh, is actually from um, St. Louis, and she came from a Catholic family. And a lot of the political views that she will develop, um, she had stated that they come sort of directly from a lot of her experiences. Growing up in a working class family, she got a scholarship to go to, I think it was a, a Catholic college, and she decided in the early 40s that she actually, it wasn't challenging enough for her. And so she gave up her scholarship so that she could go to Washington University. In order to be able to do that, she worked night shifts um, inspecting ammunitions at an ammunition plant during World War II. And so she kind of drew on that in the sense of if you want something, you have to do it yourself. You can't rely on anyone else to do that for you, whether it's the government, no matter what, you've got to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so she graduates. She gets her degree in political science. She moves to D.C. where she gets employment in uh, conservative think tanks. And so this is still a little bit before sort of this new right. So we're still looking at the 40s and the 50s. But she works on a lot of campaigns, um, Republican campaigns. During uh, the early Cold War, she becomes very invested in anti-communism. So this is would be like the Red Scare, sort of that same time period. But she really develops this belief that America, in order to protect its own interest, needs to be firmly anti-communist. So that's sort of her formative years. It comes from her family background, but also a lot of the experiences that she has had. Her husband is also a very conservative lawyer. So when she marries him, she develops a lot of her ideas along with him as well. So what were her objections to the Equal Rights Amendment and how did she go about drumming up support for not ratifying this amendment? So I'll start uh, with the second part of your question. She was incredibly talented when it came to speaking to people and to speaking to small and large groups. And so she's using her experience that she got um, in D.C. when she worked on campaigns to capitalize on some of the issues that were coming up that were seen as backlashes to the women's rights movement. So one of the big issues for a lot of women who didn't identify with what they would have called radical feminist Uh, they believe that a more traditional way of American life was under attack. So the role of the woman in a household, the, you know, celebrated role of a woman as, you know, caring for her children, caring for her home, growing up in a Christian-oriented society that actually supported and valued those kinds of roles, a lot of women felt that their place in the household was being undermined by some of the gains of the women's rights movement. And so Phyllis was able to tap into that. And a lot of that anger, that backlash against women's rights, Phyllis also identified with that. So she, for most of her life, had really held firm to this idea that there's nothing wrong with a woman 
sort of remaining in her home to take care of her children. There's nothing wrong with a woman working outside of her home, all right, and then going home to take care of her children. But she was very distressed that it seemed like by the time you got to the late 60s, it's almost as if the women's rights movement to her, how she perceived it, had turned around and devalued the more traditional roles of a woman as like a wife and a mother. And so she was really like in the right time at the right place, but she was able to use her communication skills to build a broad support base for that. Just before we go on, I can't really see why having the Equal Rights Amendment would have a negative effect on women who wanted to stay at home. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it also relates to some of the ideas that even if the ERA didn't specifically mention anything, right? So like you're saying, there wasn't anything in the ERA that would have threatened a woman's ability to remain at home and choose to raise her children and work as little or as much as she wanted. There's nothing, there's certainly nothing in the ERA that stated that, but it was that perception that the ERA was just one more piece of evidence that the radical women's rights movement was kind of infiltrating all different aspects of society. And then also the the issue of the draft um, is really important. I can get to that in a little bit. But yeah, there's no explicit language in the RA that mentions anything about limiting a woman's right to choose what she wants to do. If, if anything, it's almost the opposite. But for many women who are just in this movement in society where they feel like they can't identify with some of the more prominent women's rights activists like Gloria Steinem or, or anyone else, they feel like they aren't representative of what they're experiencing. And so they see the ERA as just one more step toward a type of American society that they don't want. Okay. So in pushing back against these uh, radical feminists, they actually targeted the uh, RA, even though it wasn't necessarily anything to do with those feminists. Right. Absolutely. This to them, I mean, if you're talking about changing the constitution, so this isn't even like a bill or a law or anything of that nature. It's actually, you're going in and tweaking the constitution. And if you're a member of the women's rights movement, or you identify with feminism, you see that as a, a great victory. But if you're a woman or a man who doesn't think that the way the country is progressing when it comes to women's roles is the way it should be progressing, then this is just like it's the ultimate slap in the face or the ultimate move by the government to push back against traditional family or Christian values. So um, carry on by telling us a little bit more about how Phyllis Schlafly went about this. You said she was a master communicator. How did she actually kind of harness communication tools to get her message out there? So one of the great and really interesting things about the new, the rise of the new right was a grassroots form of activism. So in a lot of ways, the new conservative movement wasn't top down necessarily, but more bottom up. Uh, so it's more of like a, like a social movement that comes, you know, kind of quote from, from the people and women for a while had been directly involved in that because they do see their role as protecting uh, this very, traditional Christian form of life and how women fit into it, they saw that as their prime purpose. And so ever since like the late 40s through the 50s, women had been at the ground level on that. And they spoke within their church groups. They spoke, you know, at maybe like their different lunch clubs. They worked on different campaigns. They were kind of right at the bottom of it. And so Phyllis comes out 
of this movement, of that grassroots movement, but because she is able to communicate and kind of take these more intellectual ideas that are coming from um, economists and political scientists, she can take some of those and kind of distill them down into easily digested kind of nuggets of information that she can relay to a larger group. And she has, by the late 60s, she's incredibly well-known. She's well-known as a speaker, as a political activist, something that she's most well-known for by the time you get to the late 60s is being um, a supporter of Barry Goldwater, who ran for president in 1964 against Lyndon Johnson. And he lost in a pretty bad way, but she really kind of threw herself behind his candidacy because she felt that he was the true conservative candidate. He wasn't moderate like uh, President Eisenhower or even Nixon, who ran before in 1960. She wrote a book, a very popular book in 1964 called A Choice, Not an Echo. Tons of people read it and they learned about her ability to write and communicate. And the whole point of that book was explaining how Goldwater was a new choice for conservatives, not just an echo of a more moderate Republican Party. Because of that book, she goes on speaking tours, but she also will become a leader of the National Federation of Republican Women um, when you get to the late 60s. So she is able to leverage a lot of media outlets, so meeting with reporters, publishing newsletters. She's able to gain a lot of support by many women who would feel like Otherwise, they're kind of left out of the political process. She reaches out to them and speaks directly to them in a variety of forms. And that's how she's able to build the support by capitalizing on some of the concerns of what she would have called the average woman. So not a feminist, not a women's rights activist, but any other sort of middle working class woman who didn't want anything to do with the more radical elements of society. And so how did the Vietnam War and the draft play into this? It's really interesting with the draft, because that becomes something that it's almost bipartisan. It bridges a lot of gaps between people who might have been pro or anti-war before. So once you get to like 1968 and views on Vietnam start to change and you actually see a lot of Americans who were once pro-Vietnam, they're going to move over to the anti-war side, not necessarily because they're anti-war activists or they're radicals or they're members of the left, but because they're they're tired of seeing their loved ones um, possibly going and dying for something that it doesn't seem like we're getting too far. So the draft became a way to kind of bridge those two groups. Um, a lot of people became anti-draft, no matter where you kind of stood on the political spectrum. It was something that brought these two groups together. And so by the time you get to the early 70s and you have the ERA um, it swings back up again in momentum. It's very easy for conservative women's rights activists. They use that as, well, do you really want to create this situation where women could also be drafted, right? If they are equal with men in every way, do you really want to give the government an opportunity to draft women who shouldn't be serving in war, but should be able to stay back in the United States and raise their family or kind of make a, a life for themselves? So the issue of the draft becomes kind of a sticking point for those who are against the ERA. Um, and it's this easy kind of go-to point that a lot of them use, a lot of the people who are anti-ERA, that a lot of them use as like a big sort of, uh, you know, what about this 
when it comes to discussing the ERA. You know, well, what about the draft? It's this great political and social point that a lot of people respond to where they do become concerned that if the ERA is passed, that means women will be absolutely identical to men. And then they could be called up to go fight and possibly die. And again, was this something that was actually on the table? Just I'm trying to work out whether that was a valid concern or if it was a smokescreen. It was a smokescreen. It wasn't really something that anyone was actually thinking about or considering. Now, you did have individuals who were pro-ERA. Some did go on the books and say, well, you know, if that's what has to happen, that has to happen. Um, Women have to be drafted. It is what it is, Uh, which made it seem like this was something that the ERA was actually part of, the idea of women being drafted. But it really wasn't something that was at the forefront or even under consideration for those who were supporting the ERA. Right, right. And so how did this progress during the 1970s? So the one big issue that also spearheaded a lot of women who were against the ERA was Roe v. Wade. Um, 1973, when the Supreme Court upholds a woman's right to get an abortion, Um, Not that that's necessarily connected to the ERA, but for those who were against the ERA, this was just one more example of the way the country was moving. So when you look at the ERA and how it moves through the 1970s, you're going to see really by 1977, 1978, there's starting to be a massive backlash against the ERA. It's losing momentum and it, it will kind of go up again, I think it's 1978, but by that time, it doesn't have the bipartisan support that it had before because of what kind of changes had occurred with the Republican Party, with the new right throughout the 1970s. So by 1982, the ERA is actually pretty much tabled. By that point, it doesn't have the momentum that it had earlier in the 1970s. And a lot of that has to do with the changes in the Republican Party and the changes of conservatism. And, you know, someone like Phyllis, who headed the Stop Era campaign, so Stop Taking Our Privileges, uh, (laughs) that whole movement was against the ERA. Just going back to Phyllis herself, you were talking about what a master communicator she was, and you talked about her giving presentations and speeches. Was a lot of what she did also covered by the media? Absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. She. It wasn't just that, you know, she was speaking to reporters um, or speaking directly maybe to members of the media all the time, but because of the way she worked to build support, it's almost you couldn't ignore her. She was excellent at kind of attracting media attention and also the way she fashioned herself. And she knew this. This wasn't a mistake or coincidence, but she fashioned herself as a woman's rights activist. So she would bring this up time and again, and she would say, look, I am also an activist for women's rights. I just don't identify as a feminist. And so she was able to use that, like, I don't want your daughters to have to go and be drafted in a war. I think women should have certain protections when it comes to things like domestic violence or um, a woman's right to have a child in case there are issues with divorce and custody. And so she kind of turned that and used it to say, I'm the woman's rights activist who will actually look out for the average woman. I'm not part of the bra burning 
liberal leftist women's rights movement. Those are the elites. They don't understand what it's like to be sort of this, quote, average middle class American. And so that message was interesting for the media to hear someone like her calling herself a women's rights activist. It kind of pushed back against the view that most people had. And it was really galvanizing and interesting to hear someone like her speaking out in this way. So she received a lot of media attention. She was invited on a number of news hours and news shows to debate against pro ERA individuals. And over and over again, she would use that sticking point of the draft and also her being the activist who was actually looking out for normal, you know, women who weren't marching or protesting. Right. She sounds very clever. She is very, yeah, she's very clever. She has a lot of political experience and she was really able to use it at just sort of the right time. So what has happened to the Equal Rights Amendment since then? It's still, it still goes up. People still reintroduce it right into Congress. But I think at this point, I don't want to say it's kind of dead or, or flat, but it doesn't have the political momentum that it had before. There are people who support it. They want it to be reintroduced. They want to get a vote on it. But when you don't have something or you don't have a law or an amendment that really feels like there's an urgency to it, um, it will kind of fall flat. And I think that urgency of what the ERA kind of stood for in the 60s and the 70s, it just doesn't seem like that's there anymore, especially when you look at the political landscape today. It's almost like, where does the ERA fit into all of that. We're dealing with the issues of equal pay, the issue of abortion is is coming up again and again, but it's almost like the ERA is this old-fashioned approach to what to do about the issues that women face. Right. So what do you think, if anything, women are not getting because this amendment hasn't been ratified? I think it's the equal pay issue. I think that's the point that the ERA could have addressed. Now, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of ways to get around that like there are today. But I think that's that's one of the big issues that we still face. But why would that not have been addressed by the Equal Pay Act, which I think happened in 1963? Is that right? Yes, that is exactly right. And that is also something that Phyllis <laughs> actually used over and over again when she was arguing against the ERA. She kept saying, look, we don't need something enshrined in the Constitution. We have a law that says it is unequal to pay women less than men. So in, in one way, you could say, well, you know, what would the point of the ERA be? Because it's already a law, but there's there's something to be said about fundamentally changing the Constitution to include language that is very sweeping um, and very broad, so that if you would get challenges or a situation where a company is purposefully not paying a woman as much as one of their male employees, it adds more weight. It's not just breaking the law, but you're actually violating constitutional rights. So I think because we don't have the ERA. I feel like there's just some weight that's not there for that. What other sort of ongoing ramifications has the work of Phyllis Schlafly had? You talked a little bit about the rise in the new conservatism that took place around the time that she was becoming a strong media presence. Has that translated into a recognizable part of the right now? And also the activist grassroots organizations, do they still exist in the same way? Her activism and the ramifications for what she was able to do for the new right were, I mean, really, really big. They were really impactful. And when you get to the 1980s and you see the election of Ronald Reagan as president, this is often seen as like a culmination of the new right and 
all the things that the new right was working for in terms of bridging fiscal conservatism and sort of a small government with the support of religious freedoms or religious rights for Christians, that becomes the narrative or the characteristic of this this new Republican Party. And so you can definitely see her influence and how she was able to use the issue of women's rights to bring another element of that in and to get women interested in politics who may have not um, be interested in it before. And so you see her mark on that. And also you do see this legacy of going to the people and the people rallying around different ideas and working at the grassroots level for different political issues and concerns. I would say the last election, so the 2016 election, complicated that a little bit. If you look at things like donors and you look at individuals like the Koch brothers and the money that was donated to different think tanks, that might kind of challenge that idea of conservatism as a total grassroots movement. But the way it's portrayed by the media, it very much looks like the election of Republican candidates really comes from the people, that this is like a people's movement. These are individual Americans who are rising up against what they see as elitism, as leaders who are out of touch with their concerns or their needs, that they're being kind of forgotten and pushed aside. And that message that the media has kind of picked up and run with, I think it characterizes a lot of how people today look at, you know, what the Republican Party and conservatism is. And that's it's almost like we've kept that grassroots idea and haven't really let go of it ever since the new right, that this is completely like a populist movement and there's no top down activism and all that this is very much from from the people. Let alone intervention by other countries or anything like that. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we've mostly been talking so far about people on the conservative side of the political spectrum. Have people from the more liberal side of the spectrum also learned anything from Phyllis Schlafly? I think there was a big push to try and create a very broad liberal base. So the idea that somehow uh, Democrats and those on the left are sort of East Coast intellectuals or they're elitists from academia or they're this class of people who are so far removed from what it is that everyday average Americans, which you can read between the lines there, right? So like working class white Americans, but somehow they're removed from their needs. That was a big thing that the Democratic Party and liberals had to try and overcome. And so throughout the 80s, you can see a lot of people who use that kind of same grassroots activism that the right and conservatives did. They tried to do the same thing and build a very broad coalition that tried to draw from many different groups and put forth this idea, this notion that this is sort of like the same thing with the conservatives. This is grassroots activism. This is not intellectuals or elite politicians who are, you know, sort of giving this top down flavor to the movement. This is really from the people using uh, the phrase, I think like direct marketing might be the best, the best phrase to use when it comes to the tactics of the new right. So flyers, sending things out directly to people's homes and building these sort of local groups. I think that's something that uh, liberals and activists on the left really saw how useful that could be when they looked at activists in the right. So I think I've asked all the questions I meant to ask. Is there something that you want to talk about that I haven't asked and should be asking you about? 
it's always interesting to maybe think how things, it, let's, well, maybe how different if certain tools that didn't exist at the time existed. So whenever I think about Phyllis, I always think about the internet. <laughs> she was able to do so much at a time when there wasn't social media in the way we think of it today. And so I'm just thinking about how important social media has become um, for, you know, for better or for worse, depending on how you look at it, for galvanizing, you know, whoever the average American is, whatever, whatever that might look like. It's always fascinating to think that someone like Phyllis Schlafly was able to do a lot of the same things in the 60s and the 70s before we even had what we think of today as social media. That's just something to always keep in mind. No doubt social media has had a huge impact on political activism and social movements, but it's not like the methods that people use it for are are new. Right. This is the thing that I keep kind of understanding again and again about the internet. It might have changed the speed, the velocity, the size or whatever, but it hasn't fundamentally changed an awful lot of things. Absolutely. Yeah. The speed at which we are able to do these things. And I guess the ability to build like global movements is certainly there in a way that it wasn't before. But using the media has always been a tactic, for sure. If there were anything that you could do um, in terms of, I mean, we we live in a country of free speech, which is great. But is there any kind of like... um, curbs that you would like to see on different forms of media? That's a good question. I, maybe not so much curbs on social media. I would say that some kind of class on like information literacy should be offered or not offered, but uh, required for students, whether that's at the high school level or the college level, so that they sort of know what to look for, and to be able to tell the difference between something that projects a certain view and something that is completely fake. I think we see that a lot on both sides, where it's easy to look at something that you might not agree with and say, oh, well, that's not true. That's fake news. That's false. But that might not be. It just might be something that you don't agree with, whether you're on the left or the right. And I think being able to educate people in a way to be on the lookout for some of the the benefits and also the pitfalls of free speech. I think that's a lot of our responsibility for that, for sure. Absolutely. And before I let you go, would you mind telling us what you're currently working on? I'm working on a project now that looks at the role of the media more broadly. So it's not just a synthesis, but looking at how much power Americans traditionally have kind of given the media to shape their beliefs and their actions. So it's very broad, um, but that's sort of what I'm working on now. And definitely the new right and then coverage of internment, um, coverage of civil rights movements. Those are all things that I'm I'm looking into. Gosh, that sounds fascinating. So just before you leave, has that fluctuated a great deal over time or is it something that tends to be pretty constant just in different mediums? Some of my argument is that it's pretty constant in many different mediums. And that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in kind of looking at three different examples to kind of make the point that for sure the way different different mediums develop is very important, but there's a thread that ties all of this together. Well, Stephanie Hinnishitz, a huge thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you very much. For Ohio Humanities, I'm Rachel Hopkin. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at rhopkin.com at ohiohumanities.org and please note there is no S on the end of Hopkin. 
Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This podcast is also made possible in part through the support of the Ohio State University's Humanities Institute. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.